You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So we're going to read um, 1 Corinthians 10, and we're going to read through about uh, maybe verse 15, 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. <clears throat> And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but as such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Who among us has not been overconfident? Who among us has not at some time or many times thought, ah, I can handle that? No problem, only to be overwhelmed by a situation. In many, many cases, when, and we should consider this as Paul is teaching the Corinthians here, when overconfidence overwhelms us, it should be a warning. Because um, there, is, there is, Paul is going to be explaining to the Corinthians how easy it is for us to put ourselves in situations where maybe our confidence should have been in God and not in ourselves. Of course, every time it should be. But sometimes we, we become certain that we can handle a situation. We don't need anybody's help. We don't need anything. We can do it. The Nike commercial. Just do it. And then we don't. And, and for, for the Corinthians, Paul wants the, the example of the Israelites centuries before to, to, as it played out and as they acted as they, could, as they could handle anything, they could do whatever they wanted. Paul uses that to counsel the Corinthians and by extension us not to put stock in self, not to put, not to take airs or put on airs as it is so that we can convince ourselves we can handle it without the help of anyone. And I'll be telling some anecdotal stories about that. Some of those things have happened to people in my life that were just startling. People who I would have never expected these things to happen to at the time. However, looking back, 
I see now. I can see now what happened. So we ended up last week on verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. It is written the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, understanding that that was a metaphor for sexual immorality. And uh, the reference, of course, was Exodus chapter 32, which was the account of the golden calf. And Paul is concerned about this, and he's not just writing these things because he's casting about, the Holy Spirit's casting about looking for filler for the end of, of or for the middle of First Corinthians. The fact is, the Corinthians, some of them had apparently reverted to their pre-Christian days. And so this is a direct reference to excessive feasting and sexual immorality. And, and it should be a warning to the Corinthians. And, and then so in verse 8, Paul gets even more specific. He says, do not, nor let us, and, and notice how he includes himself, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. When God decides to judge evil, sometimes it's catastrophic. And in this particular case, it was. Paul's concern was for the immorality that is, that is certain to follow the debauched activities that go on in the idol feasts. So some of the Corinthians apparently were thinking they were strong enough that they could attend those idol feasts to get the good meat. Well, what went on at those feasts was much, much more dangerous than many of them, I think, realized. Um, even the strongest Corinthian could not take a chance on attending those and escaping unscathed. What they would see, what they would hear, would be grist for their own potential immorality. It is well known that the best way to prevent immoral actions is not to indulge in immoral directions or immoral thoughts. Do not even go that way. Don't make provision for it. Avoid it. Why not put some thought into it, Corinthians? Paul is saying, I'm kind of reading into this now. Invite one of your poor brethren from the church over to dinner and serve them a meal that you know they will like. Leave the idol feast out of it completely. Purchase your food at market and be done with it. Good advice. Stay away from those idol feasts. It's unnecessary. There is some concern here now with the discrepancy regarding numbers here. Paul is likely referring to a reference in um, Numbers 25, 1 through 9. We'll read 1 through, we'll read, yeah, we'll read all of it, 1 through 9. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. <laughs> and the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought, brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. He went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced them both through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Paul said 24,000. The book of Numbers lists 24,000. The simplest way to resolve this discrepancy is to note that the total was 24,000, which would have included the number that the judges killed, referred to in verses 5 and 6. Prior to the fell on one day, which indicates that the judges probably executed a thousand, regardless, regardless, 
Paul is very concerned that the Corinthians not fall prey to a sexual immorality, a plague that was far too easy to partake of in the first century. And it's becoming like that today in our society. It's far too easy to partake of it. We can never live carelessly. Paul was warning the Corinthians of this very, very, very thing. Overconfidence can breed recklessness. The Israelites in Shittim began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the, <coughs> to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. They did it as a group. And it's interesting, sometimes it's easier to partake of wrong activities if we do it as a group. Uh, it's, it's just difficult to stand alone, isn't it? To say, no, I won't do that. But God can provide the grace. God will provide the grace. And he could for these Corinthians. They could make different plans. He said, don't let us act immorally as some of them did. And then he warns them. And 23,000 fell in one day. So we think, ah, that's not going to happen to us. You know, the Lord has a way of judging sin that is remarkably beyond our ability to anticipate how he may judge it. And so... He warns the Israelites here, don't let us act immorally. Don't let us act immorally. Now that's not to say, and we'll get to this too, but temptation comes. Temptation itself is not a sin. It's what we do with it. It's what Israel did with it. It's what the Corinthians were doing with it. And it was breaking up relationships in the church. And again, I can say it with, with confidence. <laughs> Overconfidence can breed recklessness. It can breed recklessness, whether it's in relationships with one another, whether it's in the things that we do each day, how we comport ourselves, how we drive, all kinds of things. That's the first thing that come to mind, was overconfidence and behind the wheel, and how that can lead to uh, very sad things, very sad things. Any comments about verse 8, nor let us act immorally? Verse 9, nor... Let us try the Lord, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now, God cannot be tempted to sin. His patience can be tried. The most common method of trying God's patience is by seeing just how far God will go in allowing us to sin. How close we can get to the world. How much we can do. How much enjoyment, and I'm putting that word in triple quotes, we can have while still being a Christian. Another way to tempt or try God is through complaining, but that's covered in the next verse, so we'll leave that. We won't steal the thunder of verse 10. In this particular verse, Paul is alluding to the story in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21, 5 through 9. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And I can hear him say it like that. We're all going to die. You're just evil, Moses. For there's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Picture, mom's labored all day. She's provided a wonderful meal. And the kids come in and they go, oh, meatloaf again. Do you know how quickly that meatloaf plate can break over their heads? It's just, no, I shouldn't have said that. That was awful. That was awful. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord 
and against you, and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Paul warns the Corinthians not to speak against the Lord, nor to test his patience. It's likely that some of the Corinthians were pushing um, their liberty to the limits. They wanted to see just how much of the flesh they could enjoy, misunderstanding and misapplying the liberty that Christ had given them. You know, we live in the age of grace. Salvation is certain, sovereignty is sovereignly given as it is by God, so, so why not see how much fun I can have? What the Israelites discovered when they tried God in this way was that they would be destroyed. And thus it is, maybe the Corinthians did not have snakes roaming about the streets of Corinth, killing wayward Christians, but their lives would be devoured by the wickedness. There would be no effectiveness in the church, and others would not come to salvation. Now, it was pointed out to me last week that often, very often, God's judgment does not come in the same season as the sin. Sometimes it delays. In Ecclesiastes, I believe it's chapter 8, 11. Because sentence is not executed against an evil act, so the hearts of the sons of men are fully committed in them to do evil. I might have, I probably, since I've got a Bible right here and, and we're being depressed, I mean preached to every day out of, week out of Ecclesiastes. No, actually, I'm not depressed at all. I am thoroughly enjoying this, this work. Pardon me? If you make everything legal, there's no crime? You can make things legal. Doesn't necessarily mean they're moral, I think, but yeah. Uh, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. I had a, I think I've told this story before, but I worked with a young man back in the early 1980s, late 1970s, anyway, back, back in the last century. Hey, you can say that. That sounds pretty interesting. And he was having an immoral relationship. He was a Christian, a professing Christian. I don't know if he was, I don't know his heart. I don't know if he was one or not. But, uh, and I remember at the time I was far more brash. And I said, you can't be doing what you're doing and call yourself a Christian. And he said, well, God will forgive me. And I remember, I actually, we were pulling chain and I dropped It was like, that, you, you can't really believe that. And he did. He believed that he could commit an immoral act, but because he was a Christian, God would forgive him. I would submit to you that our behavior tells us a lot about what our heart is actually like. And I don't know now, I haven't seen, I haven't seen this guy much in the, he still lives here, but at the time, I was pretty confident that he wasn't born again, not doing that kind of thing. And so the Israelites, they discovered that when they tried God in this way, they were destroyed. And the sentence against sin in our lives can sometimes take time to play out. And so we may not see an immediate result. And that's why you'll see many people say, well, if this is really a wrong thing, let God strike me dead right now. I wonder how many people who said that were internally shaking in their boots. But at any rate, so God doesn't strike them dead, must be okay. That is a silly way to live. It's far more effective to live according to the principles of Scripture. And so Paul says here that if the, when the Israelites discovered that when they tried God in this way, he struck 24,000 dead. 
So what happens is, as I mentioned earlier, the, they may not have been instantly bitten in the streets of Corinth by, by wayward snakes, but their lives would be devoured by the wickedness. They would lose their testimony. There would be no effectiveness in the church. Any reward they may have won would be lost, and no one would be interested in salvation from, to that kind of a, a lifestyle. It was what they were living already, especially in Corinth. So, any comments about verse 9? Now we're going to talk about grumbling. And this is one of those cool words that sounds like what's going on. Grumble, 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 grumble. Murmur, 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 grumble. He says in verse 10, Nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. There were ten times... Israel was guilty of grumbling often during the Exodus, and Moses recorded ten times that, that we can discern. In Exodus chapter 14, 10 through 12, at the Red Sea, where it seemed that Pharaoh's army would destroy them. Then in Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 24, at Marah, where they found bitter water. Then in Exodus 16, 1 through 3, in the desert of Sin, as they were hungry, as they hungered. Exodus 16, 19, and 20. In the desert of sin, as they paid no attention to Moses concerning the storing of the manna until morning. Remember, they weren't supposed to store it. They were supposed to pick it fresh, pick it up fresh every day, except for the one day of the week. Um, Exodus 16, 27 through 30. In the desert of sin, as they disregarded Moses. Okay, I already said that one. 17, verses 1 through 4. Exodus 17, 1 through 4. Number 6. At Rephidim, as they complained for water. Number 8. Numbers... Um, Number seven, at Mount Sinai, as Aaron led the people in making the golden calf. We looked at that last week. Number eight, Numbers 11, one through three, at Tibera, where the people raged against the Lord. Number nine, Numbers 11, four through 34, at Kibroth Hata'ava, in the, in the grumbling provoked by the rabble for quail. <laughs> I, one of the fellows at a church I used to go to figured out how many quail that was, and it was like billions of quail, but at any rate. Numbers 14, 1 through 3, the last time at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, when the people refused to receive the good report of Joshua and Caleb, but rather wished themselves dead. They got their wish, didn't they? They ended up dying in the wilderness, unable to enter the promised land. Sad, sad thing. Finally, in disgust, in chapter 14, or excuse me, yeah, in chapter 14, Numbers 14, the Lord cries out, How long? He says, the Lord says to Moses, How long will people spare me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? The Old Testament section that Paul was referring to is in Numbers 16. 12 through 15. Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, We will not come up. It is not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but would you also lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us up into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have us inherited vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey for them, from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. And then in chapter 30, uh, 16, verses 32 through 35, And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and all their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. 
So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were bound around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense, the strange fire. Numbers 16, 41 through 49. But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You're the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. They fell on their faces, then they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put it in fire, in, put in it fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly, for behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who died on account of Korah. God does not take grumbling lightly. He is glorified by our contentment, and he is dishonored when we grumble. It is a tacit statement when I grumble that God has failed me. God has failed me. If he really knew what he was doing, this would not be happening to me because he wouldn't let it happen. For those whom he foreknew, we'll look at that in just a minute. Every time the Israelites ran into some difficulty, they petulantly grumbled and whined. This seems to be endemic uh, in the human race, as a matter of fact, especially those under 12. No, that was a silly thing to say. All of us, even endemic to all of us. Paul will deal with that a few verses later. Suffice it to say that God is so sick, how God has put it in Romans 8 cannot be, cannot be matched. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. To those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. In the book of Hebrews, it says, it says that, God, that Jesus learned obedience. Jesus learned obedience. Hard things came into Jesus' life, just like they came into, come into our lives. And he weathered them. And he ended up on the cross None of us have weathered the kinds of things that the, that the Son of God weathered, went through. In the book of Philippians, Paul gives excellent counsel regarding the principle of contentment. He had learned to live content with whatever God brought his way. Indeed, his contentment with the Lord arose out of the fact that he knew God could strengthen him to do whatever was necessary with the means he had at his disposal at any given time. And that verse 13 needs to be carefully read in context with the verses preceding it. Philippians 4 11 through 13, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Whether it's in abundance, I can do that through him who strengthens me. Whether it's in need, I can do that through him who strengthens me. 
And I'm not sure which is harder. Um, probably most of us would think that the, the, the um, humble means is harder. But imagine what it's like to be very, very, very well off and want to take care of that, to adjudicate that wealth in a manner that God dictates, in a manner that would, would please God and would honor Him. That's got to be hard too. I'd sure like to find out, some people say. I remember yeah, people always say, you know, if people, back when I was a lot more vocal about this lottery thing, people would say, oh, I'd sure like to win the lottery. I said, well, it's sure ruined a lot of lives. And people say, well, I'd sure like to find out. You know, I don't know. Pardon me? Let me try. Give me a chance. It won't ruin me. That's a whole other story. There was a book written about 90, that followed 93 people who had won the lottery. And uh, of the 93, one person handled it well, and it was a woman who was already well off. She already knew how to handle money. When you come into big money all at once, it can wreak havoc in your life. But that's a whole other story, and I don't want to get off into the weeds. Um, the fact is, um, Paul has given this excellent counsel. And, and the reminder is, and the reminder is to the Philippians, the reminder of the Corinthians. And bear in mind, what, what we're reading is a snapshot, a book, an epistle that was written to give to the Corinthians at a time when they were struggling, when they, were, they had asked questions, as it talked about in chapter 7. They had a whole bunch of questions that they'd asked Paul. They were struggling with their own understanding of liberty. They were not acting right towards one another. And so Paul wrote this book of Corinthians. But he and other apostles and Apollos were there for a year and a half teaching them. So they got, the things that were taught to the Galatians, they were taught to the Corinthians. The things that were taught to, the, uh, to Titus, they were taught to the Corinthians. Paul did not hesitate to give the whole counsel of God to those that he ministered to. So we're, what we're reading in Corinthians right now is specifically dealing with the, the specific problems they were having. But the rest of the counsel of God would have been taught to them as well. In, indeed, this idea, this concept of how to be content, how to be able to, to be filled and go hungry and, and do all things that, that are necessary to do because Christ could strengthen them, that was taught to the Corinthians too. They would have known about this. And so as he's going through this book, he's warning them about their specific problems. Why would he say, don't grumble, if they weren't grumbling? Ron. Yes, absolutely. You bet. Yeah, <laughs> I, I sound pretty negative, don't I? Yeah. The whole world's going to end today. We're all going to die, and nobody's going to get bacon today. Oh, that'll really upset everyone. So, no, there, would, there was probably plenty, and most likely some of them might have been some of the ones that wrote to Paul and said, hey, we need some help here. We, we need some help. We, we've got some people that have some serious issues, and we've done what we can. Come give us a hand, Paul. So yeah, there would have been plenty. Any other comments or questions about verse 10? Yes, Lanny. Yeah, the word complain or grumble, uh, what's the definition of that? I mean, especially this last year, I mean, everybody's complaining and grumbling in politics and stuff. People are sitting around having coffee. Well, you know, this is our guy, that's our guy. We just do that naturally. Or you yeah. think that is actually a sin? Or is it this is grumbling against God. Against God. It's one thing to remark about the difficulties that are going on in government. It's another to complain that God isn't doing the right thing. That God has failed us. 
Um, you know, if, if God really knew what he was doing, this guy or this person would have won the election. That's, that's the concept here. The Corinthians uh, and the Israelites, they were grumbling against God's provision in their life. Whether it was for good or for difficulty, whatever God brings into our lives, it's, it's important to remember that Romans 8.28, there is no problem applying that when everything's going along swimmingly. Oh yeah, all things work together for good. I just got a raise. Yeah, he allows everything. Uh, where do we, where's that line that says, okay, stop it? You know, because now you're just complaining about God. Where does it turn into complaining about God? So I can't understand where that line is of conversation that you just, you know, disagree with something. Any comments? Where's the line? The question is, how do you know when you're complaining about the situation or you're complaining about God? Okay. That's not like, I mean, we know what's right and what's wrong. If you do something wrong, it's not God's fault. Just for fun, can I throw out there what would happen if we didn't complain even about each other and situations? So does complaining have a place? Pardon me? He allowed it. He allowed it. Okay, I'm, I'm trying, as I'm standing up here, I'm trying to think of a, of a concrete application of a way to, to explain this. Lord, why did you let this happen? That's a definite complaint against God. If the attitude is a complaining attitude, but if you're actually crying out for direction, so what is the attitude would be my, more, my concern would be, what's the attitude? Yes. Definitely. That would definitely be a problem if we're blaming God. Right. A loving God would never fill in the blank. That's definitely off limits. That's definitely, Jenny. And so then you're not complaining to God, but you're also not pretending it's all roses, but you're asking his guidance because you want your will to match I think you've got it. The question isn't, can we not recognize the difficulties that have come into our lives and, and voice those difficulties? The question is, what is our attitude? What is the direction we're going to go? Are we going to turn to the Word and ask God and maybe get counsel from others in how to correct it and how to deal with it? Or are we just going to complain? Are we just going to turn ourselves, our eyes inward, and oh, woe is me? That's when it becomes where they said, uh, where was it? I, I tried to read it the way, you're the ones who've caused the death of the Lord's people. They could have said, on the next day, the congregation of the sons of Israel said to Moses, you know, this is a very difficult situation. You brought us into the desert. We were headed for milk and honey and, and et cetera, and we haven't seen that yet. How can we help you get there? What, what do we need to do? No problem acknowledging the difficulty, the problems, the problems at hand. But when they said this, you're the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. 
No, no they didn't. They caused their own death. They wouldn't receive the report of Joshua and Caleb and they wouldn't do as, as Moses and Aaron were commanding them. And they were whining. I think we can, I, I don't want to make it too simple, but I think we can usually tell when someone's whining or when they're being creative in how they can address a situation. So, what are you going to do about it? That's another good answer for someone who's complaining. Well, so what are you going to do about it? How are you going to handle that? Start to focus the direction back on solutions rather than, oh, oh woe is me. Ron. And so some of these men could have said to Moses, how can we pray for you? We're struggling with this, Moses. We're, not, we're unhappy. We're acknowledging that. But how can we pray for you? What can we do? That's the difference. The difference is the focus. Where am I headed with this? Am I just making noise about how difficult it is in my life? Or am I, by God's grace, looking for solutions? By grace, to look for solutions. It's a matter of focus. It's a matter of attitude. And I can tell you what. Complaining feeds itself. It feeds itself. It's like a vicious circle. And you start complaining about something, and, the, and what's happening in your life looks darker than it did before you started complaining. And pretty soon, ain't nobody ever gone through this but me. Nobody's felt this. I'm the only person alive, and Elijah said, that has ever, ever been this way. And the Lord said, um, there's several thousand right down here that have not bowed the knee, Elijah. Knock it off, or I'm going to send a raven to feed you. You know, fortunately, God didn't deal with him like that. I would have. Yes? I think it goes back to being content of all situations you're in. And I think that's a struggle. It is a struggle. You know, and regardless of what's going on in the world, you've got to be content in your life because that's who God is confirming for you at that time. You know what I'm saying? As we develop an attitude of contentment. It becomes more of the kind of clothing we're wearing. We're a content person. That is a lifelong, a lifelong pursuit. And, and none of us are ever going to get it perfect. But I know some who are, who are far farther ahead of me on that road than I am, who are obviously content people. Uh, they trust the Lord. They know that he, he has their best in mind. When difficulties come into their life, they don't just slough them off. Tears, hurt, pain how they respond to it when they get up from their knees. That's the difference. That's the big difference. These guys said, you're the ones who caused the death of the Lord's people. That was as far from the truth as it could possibly be. Blame shifting, Blame shifting? yeah. That can be one. No, there's, there's self-interest is a good thing. Greed is bad, but self-interest is a good thing, trying to better yourself. But you try to better yourself being content with where you're at. If God keeps me here, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Now, if I have an opportunity to walk through that door, I'm going to walk through it by God's grace. And maybe I'll, be, I'll better myself financially or attitudinally, which is far more important, 
or, or in a relationship. But meanwhile, where I am, yeah, that's good enough. Lemuel said, was it in chapter 30? Some people always, when, when people ask me how I'm doing, I say good enough. I, I'd like to claim that that's unique and natural to me. It's not. It's uh, Proverbs chapter 30. And this new Bible, Proverbs is in a different place. Proverbs chapter 30. I, I wasn't prepared to do this, so it might take me a second to find it. Two things I've asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of the Lord my God. What I have is good enough. Boy, it's, oh, I'm sorry. Now I've got to find Proverbs again. And, it, and it's moved again. Oh, I've got one of those weird Bibles where the, the books move around. Give me just a second. It's Proverbs chapter 30, verses... Uh, 7 through 9. Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. What God has done for you today is what God is doing for you today. And it is a good thing. Now, there are those in this room today who are probably going through some difficulties and I am not minimizing those. And, and those of us who, who know, who are with you, can pray for you. Maybe we can help. But, but meanwhile, meanwhile, the attitude that the Corinthians did not have was my life, is, my life is, is in the hand of the Lord, and my life is a good thing in the hand of the Lord. Their attitude apparently was a grumbling, well, if it wasn't for this or if it wasn't for that, I'd be much better. And we're going to see it gets even worse. Um, one of the things that I have noticed in folks who go through some difficulties, there's two kinds. There's those who, who, who get up from their knees and work towards solutions, and those who are convinced that no one has ever gone through this in the history of the universe and it's never been this bad for you, you don't know what I'm going through. And, and Paul deals with that. Now these things, he says in verse 11, happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. He restates the principle that he laid down in verse 6, that we must always be on guard, paying attention and learning to live soberly and properly before God. True to the apostolic understanding that the coming of Christ was the end of an era and the beginning of a new one, Paul admonishes the Corinthians that all of these things that have happened before were recorded for many reasons, one of which was to provide us with examples of how, how to live and how not to live. He advocates that the Corinthians would do well to pay attention to those lessons from earlier history. The word instruction in this particular case, is much more than a didactic line-upon-line -line learning of geography and facts. It's a, it's a properly understood it's, um, it carries the idea of a warning and an injunction to be persuaded to change behavior based on information received. So Paul is teaching the Corinthians not just how to learn to deal with the situation, but how to change their behavior. Our behavior, when it's wrong, must change, shouldn't it? Shouldn't our behavior change when it's wrong? Yes, it should change. And that's what Paul is looking for here. Um, warning through teaching improves a person's reasoning so they can reach God's solution, not their own solution. And where do we get that? We hear a voice in the closet. We go to a movie, The Shack, and find out that the Holy Spirit's 
some weird Indian Ramadan woman or something. No, it's right in the pages of Scripture. This is where God speaks to us. And then, as if to, to put the cap on this, and Ron, there are people in Corinth doing just fine, but there's plenty of them who think they stand, who think they're doing fine, who think everything's cool because I'm doing it. It must be good. I'm doing it. He says to them, take heed that you don't fall. You who think, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he, that he does not fall. Overconfidence is a condition that can plague the best of us. Paul is warning the Corinthians who think that they have the ability to partake of those pagan feasts with impunity, to take heed that they not be disqualified with what might happen there. They will not lose their salvation, but they will be made useless in the work of the church. Their relationships with others will be diminished and damaged. Their race will be impaired. The rewards they may win might be lost. We would do well to take heed to this in this modern age. There is so much power of positive thinking foolishness that plagues the church. Humility is the character quality that grace attends. Humility is the character quality that grace attends. He, gives, he resists the proud, Peter said, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. This is a willingness to get counsel. It's a willingness to let others get the credit. It's for us in the church. We are to promote the glory of God, not the glory of men. To promote the glory of God, not the glory of men. Believers who become overconfident become careless in their living. They might think that they do not need God's word as much as they used to. <laughs> they may think that they can do things by themselves, that they should seek the help of others to assist them with. <clears throat> They open themselves to temptation that they may have been spared from. Peter thought he could handle anything, and he declared to the Lord Jesus that he would be ready both to go to prison and to death. If he, and then he denied the Lord three times in one night and was terribly ashamed of that. It devastated him. And if it hadn't been Jesus himself who came to him and repaired that, Peter would have been lost. His, 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 his work, his reward would have been lost. <clears throat> I knew a man who years and years ago actually even gave Kim and I counsel in our marriage. And the counsel was good. It was biblical counsel. Um, but I lost track of him and he moved out of the country. And it wasn't until years later I found out that either he was never saved or he really, really compromised. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.